Welcome to the Kennedy Beacon Podcast, where we discuss the political and social challenges of these times and Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run for president. I'm Francis Scott here with my co-host, Aaron Good. Nico's not with us this week, but hey, Aaron, good to see you. Hey, Francis, great to be here, and I'm excited to get into this as a political scientist and uh, election veteran. Uh, this should be a good, a good show. Two degrees in political science, Aaron. Uh, three, three, three. Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm not worthy. Well, the Too title many. of this this week's show is called "No Ballot, No Vote: RFK Jr.'s Fight to Get Onto All." 50 ballots. We're going to spend some time learning about ballot access. Now, some of us didn't understand what a potential challenge this would be for Kennedy, but it's beginning to get a little bit more attention because of the challenges being presented by the business's usual duopoly. Yes, and that duopoly, the Democrats and Republicans, they are scrambling in part because of Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign. Before we introduce our guest, Let's listen to a Fox News report that ran as Team Kennedy announced he would indeed be on the ballot in the state of Utah. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. celebrating in Utah, the first state where he has qualified for the presidential ballot. He dropped out of the Democratic primary and is running now as an independent candidate. So RFK Jr. tops 20 percent in a New York Times-Siena poll of battleground states, and he is within single digits of both President Biden and former President Trump in Arizona and in Michigan. You're on one state's ballot, and I think we have the map that you all have put out about how you're going to get on the other states. You're not on the ballot in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, or Wisconsin. So explain to us how this is going to work. We need a million signatures. We're going to get on the ballot in every state and the District of Columbia. You know, a lot of the states, Martha, make it very, very difficult. They make it burdensome to get on the ballot deliberately to entrench the two-party system and to prevent dissenting voices. Most democracies in the world have a multi-party system. Uh, George Washington, actually, who was the, the last independent to occupy the Oval Office, complained it is farewell speech that, that the two-party system would encourage a kind of partisanship that would have those parties be controlled by outside interests and put to put a uh, political ambition ahead of patriotism to our country. So I don't think it's a good system, but it's the system we're dealing with. And we collected double the, the uh, petitions that with the signatures we needed in Utah in a week when it was in the middle of a snowstorm. People had to take their gloves off to sign our petition. Uh, we're going to be able to get on in every state. Uh, and it, it actually, I think, ironically, will probably help us over the long term because it's forcing us to develop an army, a ground game in all of these states that is going to serve us well when it comes time to get out the vote. So today we're getting into why it is taking all this extra effort to get Kennedy onto the ballots of each and every individual state and how the super PAC, that's American Values 24, that we all here work for American Values 24, that's a super PAC, and how the super PAC plays a role. We are very excited today to introduce you to AV24's general counsel, Deirdre Goldfarb. Deirdre, help us understand how you ended up working for the super PAC that's supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr. for president. Thank you, Francis. So I've been a huge supporter of Mr. Kennedy 
since I was about 16 years old, I grew up in the East Coast where he was a leading environmental attorney in my youth. And that was my focus. I actually majored in environmental sciences because of Mr. Kennedy. And eventually when I went to law school in my 30s, uh, did my degree in environmental law. I have always been a huge supporter of him and his environmental uh, activism. He is one of the leading, if not the leading environmental attorney in the nation. And to this day, probably the most important candidate as it relates to global warming. I have been wanting to work for him, obviously, for a long time, but having been involved in California, where I live, in um, a lot of cannabis regulations, as well as general counsel for large companies, I was hired as a consultant to draft uh, the Los Angeles Equity Fund, which was a ballot initiative to move um, city business taxes away from general funds to many, many different social equity programs that were not funded by the local governments. Um, That really got me into the ballot access world where we were trying to get an initiative on the ballot in L.A., very complicated And so this was an easy next step for me in my career because of my interest and my abilities to work in the ballot access and initiative space. Amazing. What a great story. You finally get to work for your hero. That's that's so cool. Talk to us. Most Americans, I, I can't imagine, understand why it is that Kennedy's just not on the ballot in every state. Explain to us what ballot access is and why Kennedy has to work so hard, harder than the other candidates, to get on the ballot in 50 different states who all have their different you know, rules and regulations and what they require. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, so the way um, the country is set up now, first of all, states have their own election codes. It's one of the founding fathers' powers that they gave to the states, not the federal government. So every state has their own rules and regulations, election code, bureaus of elections, secretary of states, they're all involved. Every state has its own rules. The issue on the national level is that our system really is embedded in the two-party system. We give the Democrats and Republicans the ease of needing a few signatures, if not automatic enrollment to the ballot access so that when we get our ballot, when we go to vote, we see a Democrat and a Republican. That is not the case for independents in this country. We do not have any kind of third party mechanism, if you will, in our systems that really give the people the ability to vote for somebody other than a Democrat or Republican. We all know we've had independent candidates. Some of them have done better than others. Really, it's almost such a heavy lift because every state has to be an actively engaged process legally to figure out how to do it. And then how many signatures do you need and when are the deadlines? It's really like looking at a 50, a set of 50 different rules and guidelines and regulations on every level, all the way down to the minutiae. I cannot imagine. Your calendar must be just, you know, every spare inch of white space is taken up. Aaron, did you have a question? How do you account for the vagaries of the Electoral College? Because it's a very strange um, institution. I mean, you you have uh, two. It's the, basically the number of senators plus the number of 
representatives. So every state at least has three, even a state with like almost no population like Alaska or Rhode Island has three, has three electors. Uh, how does this factor into the way you uh, are going about prioritizing this or that state and, and the overall big picture? So the Electoral College is a whole nother podcast, if you will. I mean, we could spend hours talking about how that plays into the popular vote. We already know that the Electoral College chose President Trump when he did not win the popular vote. So we know the Electoral College is its own beast and its own system. Basically, the, the, the country, each state has, you know, their senators, their representatives. Representatives are based upon population. That's why some a state like California has 54 electors. There's 438 na- nationwide. Typically, in the two-party system, the candidate that wins gets the 270. That's the majority of the Electoral College votes. And that really is a kind of, it's a part of ballot access. But when we talk about ballot access, we're talking about who is on the ballot when you walk into on election day, who you get to write to sign your name on. And that's what the, you know, we'll get to the electoral college after this. First thing we got to do is get him on the ballot in all 50 states and DC. And the way you do that is really looking at the rules of every state. Some states need 300 signatures. Some states need 250,000. And that doesn't even count how many of a buffer we need to put in to make sure we hit the target requirement, right? So that's more of the task at hand for an independent. An independent has to get on the ballot so that we as voters, when we go to election day, can actually choose him. I may not even support him, but I want to be able to look at my ballot and say, oh, I can choose between a Dem, a Republican, and Mr. Kennedy. And that's our first task at hand is getting him on the ballot. So we give all of our voters the choice of who they want to be president. And talk to us about, you know, AV24 is a super PAC. Supreme Court ruling 2010 said basically, like, explain how super PACs came to be and how we are separate. We're supporting, we're helping in some states him get on the ballot, correct? But we are not working with Team Kennedy, which is the actual campaign. There is a strong line between the campaign and a political action committee like AV24. Yeah, so AV24 is a super PAC. We're actually a hybrid PAC. A hybrid PAC, as opposed to a campaign or a campaign committee, can take in funds that are are unlimited. And corporations, as long as they're national, can contribute large amounts. And this is all post-Citizens United. We all know it gave corporates a life, a, a presence, a ideation that you could use in this world of politics. So super PACs are a relatively new uh, entity, if you will. And they are being used now to support candidates. But the FEC has very strict guidelines, the Federal Election Commission, on what a super PAC can do versus what a campaign can do. So where that mostly comes at to play is money. You know, we can collect what they call soft money. A campaign collects hard money, limited funds, People can only contribute 3300 each to the campaign, 6600 per household. As opposed, So the super PAC is in, different than that. We can collect unlimited funds 
And these unlimited funds can be used for independent expenditures towards supporting a candidate. It doesn't necessarily always have to be the same candidate. We can support numerous candidates. Um, we can, we have, there's serious guidelines, but we cannot coordinate with the campaign. The, there are guidelines that say you can't, you know, you can't, can't make plans. You can't decide how to spend money. We can't call each other up and be like, what do you think we should do? It is absolutely essential that we keep what they call a firewall between the super PAC and the candidates team to protect both entities from FEC violations. Does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. And we don't just to clarify, you know, People have said to me before, oh, so you raise money for the Kennedy? No, we don't give money to the Kennedy campaign. Completely separate. But in some regards, we can help to support getting him on the ballot in certain states. Correct? That's legal? Yes, it is legal. I mean, there are people that will say that it's not legal. I mean, this is untested waters. We are probably the first super PAC in the history of the United States that's actually doing a conservative ballot access on the ground. We expect legal challenges. We're geared up for that. It's coming. We have chosen states that we can work in where we can pursue an independent action towards ballot access. Let me explain. So there are some states where the petition needs to be signed by the candidate. I can't call him up and say, can you sign this form? That's improper coordination. So we've had to look very deeply at the code in every state to determine what states can we act in independently. So let me give you an example. Indiana is a great example because Indiana, you can take the petition forms that our circulators get signatures on, and we can hand them into every single county. The local election boards then takes those, validates them. They will then call the candidate and say all the signatures are ready to give to the Secretary of State. That's a state where we can act independently. We can just collect all the signatures on the ground, hand them into local election boards, then they communicate directly with the county after our job is done. Impressive. Aaron? So is the it's been a while since there was a third-party challenge that had a you know any kind of bigger strategy for a, a general election i mean you had ross perot but he was trying to win and it was a sort of a strange campaign he dropped out and then came back in and ended up not you know kind of his popularity sort of fizzled out as a result of that and then you had george wallace back in, uh, in the 68 and 72 where the plan was that he could he didn't he obviously wasn't so delusional to think that the Dixie Krat version or the, you know, his, his party with Curtis LeMay that he ran. I can't remember the name of it, but they were like for the segregation now and forever. Right. Um, that was their, their slogan, which somehow didn't win. Surprise, surprise. But, uh, they had the idea that they would be able to at least win enough States that the other side wouldn't be able to get a majority. Uh, are there States in particular where you feel like Kennedy is already very strong and have there been any conversations about, uh, the ways that th- this might be used strategically uh, in the in the election or in the uh, in the process going forward. 
Yes. I mean, once again, you're speaking really like what I'm hearing is you're speaking about the contingent election, which is the 12th Amendment of the United, uh, of our Constitution. At this point, once again, our focus has really been ballot access. So what we're looking at is we're looking at states either A, that, you know, he's doing a huge volunteer drive, like he said in his what started this podcast, you know, and that's remarkable. I mean, he's mobilizing more volunteers than any candidate ever has. And our job as the super PAC is really to assist. Like I look at us as we're, we're here, we're the assist, you know, we're going to get the ball court. You know, we're trying to work into states that are either swing states or states where the number count is so huge. Um, we need to step in and help with funds and getting paid circulators on the ground. And that's our focus is all paid signatures. Um, so that's where we've chosen some of the biggest states. You know, we when we were deciding what states would the super PAC work in, kind of before we got into the weeds of what the law said, what can we cannot do, we were looking at those states that either A, had huge number of signatures that just seemed so difficult to achieve, but as well as those states that are swing states, you know, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona are three of those. We went live on the ground yesterday, no, Monday, Monday the 22nd, we started our ground operations in those states. These are swing states. These are swing states that are not just states that we think we can win, but states where we think the independent voter has a huge voice. So for example, you know, we have in Georgia every, this, these are the nuances that make this so crazy, but in Georgia, every voter can vote for more than one candidate on their petitions. So in some states, if you signed a petition for one independent candidate like Cornell West, you can't sign a petition for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. That's not true for Georgia. Georgia allows people to vote for as many candidates as they want. So the beauty there is that, and also we only need 7,500 signatures, which a whole is a whole nother story, how the state actually got to that number. But at this point, you know, we are looking at these states where the independent voter, A, already has a voice, kind of what I always say about Georgia is that's our most sophisticated electorate. They know what this means. They know what ballot access means. They know they can vote for more than one candidate. These are the states where we believe Bobby Kennedy will have a serious constituency because these are the people who want to get out there. They want to vote independent. They want something different. And I think you're going to see that not just in the swing states. I mean, people are over the two-party system and the Biden and Trump demagoguery, if you will. They're just over it. They want a choice and we want a choice and we want to be able to give them that ability to make a decision that is outside the box. And speaking of the choice, uh, I mean, what can you say about the ways that the DNC has attempted to keep third parties off the ballot? Because uh, this is something that they're putting a, a good bit of money into. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously everyone's seeing the articles, they're gearing up, they've hired one of these great firms out of DC. Um, you know, one of the ways we expect an attack is on the ground where they're actually going to monopolize circulators so we can't get them. You know, we'll see how that goes. Um, there's a lot of other ways. So one of the big ways that opposing parties, and we don't just expect it from one side or the other, we expect it from both sides, right, is to challenge signatures when we hand them in. So that probably, those kinds of legal challenges will commence after we've handed in our first batch of signatures. Like when the candidate does it, those can start there. For us, obviously, 
we're doing it in states where the deadlines have not arrived yet. And when we hand in those signatures, they we expect legal challenges. The validity gets challenged. If the circulator, the petitioners that are out there, they can be challenged. How did they sign their name? Did they use the right address? There's a million ways to attack what we're trying to do. And um, we're gearing up for that. Any chance he won't get on the ballot in all 50 states? And if if that happens, let's say he gets 49 and there's a hiccup in one, what happens then? 49 states will get to vote for Kennedy and the one state that won't, right? Um, there's no guarantee, um, but obviously that's the goal. And ob- the candidate will be successful and will hopefully follow up successfully. That doesn't mean he won't win the presidency. You know, keeping in mind that ultimately the popular vote then leads to the Electoral College, the Electoral College, he gets a majority there. You're not going to need 438 electoral votes, right? He needs 270. And that's the goal. So when he wins, it will clearly be the people's candidate winning the presidency of the United States of America. Deirdre Goldfarb, thank you so much for joining us. You have been a real treasure trove of information about the most complicated issue I can really think of right now. As my as my accountant husband always says, you know, sometimes this stuff is boring but deadly. It all really, really, really matters in terms of, you know, our freedom and, and the history of our country going forward. So on behalf of my co-hosts and colleagues at the Kennedy Beacon, Thank you for your time and your commitment to helping all of us fight for and hopefully achieve a fair election in November. Also, I want to invite you, the audience, to check out the Kennedy Beacon Substack and like, share, and subscribe to it for excellent writing and reporting on the Kennedy campaign matters and much, much more. And we hope you'll tune in. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Kennedy Beacon Podcast.